0: Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 7. John chapter 7. Been here for several months now, and we're working our way through the Gospel of John, and I think it is so helpful for us to be just going verse by verse through books of the Bible. And this is going to take some time, so bear with us and... And uh, keep keep going along with with us verse by verse through the scriptures. I wonder how many of you yeah, don't show me a hand. I, I guess, but uh, when we started this, I suggested you might want to you might want to journal the Gospel of John. Just write, just grab a an empty notebook and write out the verses as we go through them in your own hand. And I think it would be profitable. I wonder if you're doing that. Uh, you don't uh, if you haven't didn't start it. Uh, you don't. You don't have to go back to chapter 1, but you might want to start it now with chapter 7. And uh, it's a good practice to just write out the Scriptures in your own hand, and it makes you slow down and think about the Word in a way that you don't when you actually read it. Um, I do encourage you to read the Scriptures. Read the Bible for yourself. And uh, consider even journaling through John as we go. And just take your time and write out God's Word and let God speak to you through His Word uh John chapter 7 is where we're at this morning. Aren't you glad we're not in chapter 6 anymore? It was it was a long time in chapter 6, but here we are in chapter 7. Uh, have you noticed as uh as you go to chapter 7, have you noticed that God does things different than you would? Anybody notice that? You ever tried doing things your way? And and you keep trying to do things your way and and you you keep trying to do things your way, and then you finally realize that God had something else in mind, and God had something else planned, and that God wasn't in a hurry, necessarily to correct you, and He let you keep going your way for a while. Uh, I can think of my own life, and I thank God for His patience with me. Maybe you can do that too, as you look at your life and thank God for His patience with you, that He wasn't quick to write you off, he was patient with you as you tried to do your own thing, uh, you need to understand that. And as you read the Word, and as you serve the Lord, and as you spend time following the Lord and walking with Christ, you're going to find out more and more that God doesn't do things the way you, you think they ought to be done sometimes. In the familiar words of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's the truth we're going to see in the text before us this morning here in John 7. What we find here actually sets the stage for what happens with Jesus in the rest of the book. Uh, We're being introduced to kind of a, a changing of the narrative here, and we're going to find that the th- that things change in the rest of the book, and it begins here. In fact, it sets the stage for the escalation of hostility toward Jesus. Uh, follow along in your Bible. Let's begin with verse 1, chapter 7, Gospel of John. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So go back to verse 1. Verse 1 says that after this, after what? That is, after the events of chapter 6. After this, after what we saw in chapter 6, Jesus traveled about in Galilee. What we don't see here is that about six or seven months have transpired. Six or seven months have passed. So for Six or seven months, Jesus had been teaching his disciples, his chosen twelve, instructing them. He'd been preparing them. There would be a time when they would need to follow Jesus without him being present, without him being with them in the flesh. But for now, they're learning from Jesus. And for six or seven months, they've been learning as they have followed Jesus around and they've heard his teaching. and, And I'm sure he's had private conversations and private teaching with them how good to be taught, how blessed to be taught. You realize uh, the disciples were with God in human flesh, with Jesus, and what, a, what an incredible thing. And, and you might think, why, there's just no way to match that. How in the world could we possibly get the same kind of teaching that those disciples got? And, and it'd be tempting to think that way, isn't it? But I'll tell you, we are blessed. Uh, do you hold a Bible in your hands today? If you do, God gives you his word, and he gives it to you so that you will be taught by it and trained by it. And, and you are blessed if you have God's word in your hand that you can hide in your heart. And I hope you do read the word and journal the word and, and memorize the word. Um, there are other things that God has given us, uh, like his Holy Spirit. He's put his Holy Spirit in your heart. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... He teaches you from within. When you take in the Word of God and you submit to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit uses the Word to teach you and instruct you. So it's as if Jesus is in you because He is. How about that? Um, What a blessing is ours, isn't it? Uh, There's something else the Lord has given you. He's given you His church. His church to be a part of. To be a part of the fellowship of the church means that you put yourself under the teaching of the Word. And I encourage you to do that. Maybe you're not in the habit of coming on Sunday nights and and uh, you, you don't realize what you're missing. You need to be in the Word and you need to be taught by the Word. And so I encourage you to take advantage of opportunities to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the fellowship of the church, submitting to the Word of God being taught to you and preached. Maybe you don't make a habit of being in Sunday school, I would encourage you to not skip those times. Uh, I know it's tempting to sleep a little bit longer on Sunday morning, but you will be blessed if you will get going earlier and join us during the Sunday school hour so that God takes His Word as, as we feeble and frail teachers of the Word take it and deliver it. The Holy Spirit takes it and picks it up and uses it in your heart and mind. Uh, maybe you're not in the habit of joining us for Wednesday evening. It's not primarily a teaching time. It's a praying time. But you will be blessed if you will put yourself with God's people for the teaching of the Word, for the practice of prayer. Those are times that that you have and you should take advantage of. Uh, the, the disciples were blessed to be with Jesus. You're blessed to have the church. You're blessed to have the Holy Spirit. You're blessed to have God's Word. Do not neglect those things. Uh, But moving along here, during this time when the disciples were with Jesus, you can see uh, Jesus mention it here. He points to it. The opposition to Jesus' ministry was beginning to grow. Uh, Verse 1 shows us that because of this opposition and the fact that the Jews were seeking to kill him, Jesus wouldn't travel teaching in Judea. He wouldn't travel around teaching in Judea. He was was avoiding that place because the Jews were seeking to kill him. This fact is going to help us understand what comes next. Look again at verses 2 through 4, where it says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Um, you'll note here, uh, Jesus' brothers talk about the dis- your disciples, that your disciples also may see. you. If you remember in chapter 6 when we talked about disciples in the generic sense, those who showed up where Jesus was, those who followed Jesus around because they were... Uh, enthralled with his miracles, and they ate the bread and the and the fish, and they wanted more. Uh, that's what uh, Jesus' brothers are talking about, kind of disciples, those who follow Jesus around, not those necessarily who are fully devoted believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus' brothers want him to go with them to this Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, What is this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles? Commentator Leon Morris notes that this was a feast of thanksgiving primarily for the blessing of God in the harvest. But it was also observed with special reference to the blessings received during the wilderness wanderings, the time when God was pleased to manifest himself in the tabernacle. So the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So here are Jesus' brothers. They're going to Judea for this religious feast, this religious festival, this celebration, and they encouraged Jesus to go along with them so that those who were following him could see more of his miracles. Interesting that they weren't concerned with them hearing more of his teaching. They didn't say, go and present yourself so that they could hear more of your teaching. They said, they, show yourself, you know. Do more miracles. It's like they're saying to Jesus, do, "Do something big, make a big splash, make a big entrance. Show the world what you've got, Jesus." After all, you've you've lost a few followers lately. Remember that from chapter six. Many turned away because they weren't believing in him, and in fact, they were angered by his words, by his teaching. So, Jesus, brothers, here, here's your chance, Jesus, to gain some new followers. Now, at first glance, to us, it might seem like they've got a good idea. Go show yourself. Uh, gain more followers. But remember, God doesn't always work the way you and I do. God doesn't always work the way we think he should. That's the world's way of gaining a following. Make a big splash. uh, Produce a big advertising campaign. Make yourself known. But this isn't God's way. And it wasn't the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it ought not be the way of God's church. I I encourage you to think carefully about this. The the world says advertise. The world says promote. Do something crazy to get people's attention. Have a big event event. Uh, make a big splash. Now, there's nothing wrong with having an event, but if that's all we're all about, we need to be cautioned here. We need to be on guard, that we're not uh, slipping into a pragmatism that says if we do something bigger and better than the last time, we'll get more attention. When I mean, what God says we should be doing is something different. Our most important responsibility as a church is is this. It's preaching the Word and making disciples, preaching the word, leading people to Christ, and growing disciples in Christ who will follow Jesus. That's our most important task as a church. But the eyes of some, in the eyes of some, that's not making a big enough splash. We need to help God out. Let's do something a little bit bigger because, yes, it's, you know, teaching, preaching the word is important, making disciples is important, but we need to help the process along. So let's make a big splash. But that's not how God often works. What may have been going on here is that Jesus' brothers were thinking about what they might gain if Jesus were to become more well-known, more widely known. They may have been thinking about what an increased popularity for Jesus might have meant for them. And that's the danger of thinking like the world. And we can easily be sucked into this if we're not careful, thinking about If we make a bigger splash, maybe we could gain this. What can we gain for ourselves in this? It's easy to get caught up in the kind of thinking that I would call this kind of the self-preservation thinking. This kind of thinking that self-preserves. That's the kind of thinking that cares far more for what you can get out of any particular situation than for how you can be obedient to the Lord in any particular situation. Now that's what God calls us to—to to look at our lives, to look at our surroundings, to look at our circumstances, our role in this world. Our maybe it's your you have a career and you have a family and you have neighbors. What's your role there? Where God has put you? That's what you ought to think of first. Not not what can I get out of this situation? How can I help myself here? You see, God's way is for His church and for His people. That's His church to preach and teach the Word for his church, for his children to become disciples. That means his children, believers in Jesus Christ, become followers of Jesus. And that means you live in obedience to God's word. Now, that should be our primary task. What we need to understand is that God advances the truth by the change that occurs when God's people, when God's children, disciples of Jesus, are obedient to the word. When the church preaches the word and God's people change because they're being obedient to the word. That's how God often changes the world around us, by, by putting godly people in, in relationships with other people who need Christ, who need to hear the gospel. But when self-preservation becomes the goal and obedience becomes a secondary What happens is drift. We will often drift away from the truth. Even some in the church at large today say that we need to use the ways of the world to gain a greater following. And you'll see uh, many many so-called churches in the world will be very successful at this, gaining a a very large following by doing things that they, they have deemed to be effective. But they aren't obedient to the Scriptures What did Jesus say to this kind of thinking when Satan tried to tempt him with it? That's exactly what Satan was tempting Jesus with, this kind of thinking. Uh, Listen to Matthew 4 and and, uh, verse 3. Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter came and said to him, said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then we hear Satan say in verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's Satan quoting God's Word. Interesting. Saying that the angels would spare Jesus from harm if He threw Himself down. And then in verses 8 and 9, we hear this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. How bold of Satan. With each of Satan's temptations, what did Jesus do? Jesus rejected him how did he do it he rejected him with the word he turned to the scriptures the word of truth jesus says this back in verse 4 it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god in verse 7 again quoting god's word jesus says again it is written you shall not put the lord your god to the test And then he says for the third time, quoting the word in verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan's way was to try to tempt Jesus with fame and with power and with wealth. And these are the same kinds of things that Satan tries to tempt you And me with fame and power and wealth. But Jesus' way was to point back to the Word, point back to the truth and obedience to it. And that's where true disciples of Jesus need to be. We need to be following the Word, yielding to the Scriptures, yielding to God's Word, obeying the Bible. If you call yourself a believer in Jesus, you need to be a, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and, and yield to the Scriptures and obey him with your life. We saw this same way of thinking, Satan's way of doing things, back in John 6 and verse 15 when the crowds wanted to make Jesus their king. Remember what happened there? They, that he had given them bread to eat, more than they could even eat, bread and fish. And and the result was they, they wanted more of that. So let's make him king. He would have nothing to do with that. And he withdrew from them because his ways were not their ways. His way of doing things was not the way of the world's. He would have nothing to do with Satan's way and the world's way of doing things. So how does Jesus work? I want you to turn with me for a moment to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. What's the Jesus way of accomplishing the Father's will? What's the Jesus way of working to serve the Lord? If you want to know how God intends for His children, His disciples, His followers to live, this is a good passage to look at. Philippians 2, and um, I'll read verses 3 through 8. Look at it with me. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In God's economy, the way to honor is through humility. (laughs) The way up is down. In God's economy. That's not the way of the deceiver, is it? That's not what the devil wants you to think. Satan, the deceiver, says, you've got to exalt yourself. No one else will do it. You've got to protect and promote, number one. No one else will do it. No one else will look out for you. You've got to look out for yourself. But that's not what God's word says. The Bible says to you, Philippians 2, 3, count others as more significant than yourself. That's an unnatural thing for us, isn't it? But if you're a believer in Jesus, and He's put His Spirit in you, He's given you the ability to do this by His strength, with His power, with His Word, to count others as more significant than yourself. You see, that's how Jesus works. That's how God intends to do His work in this world. The deceiver says to you, look out for your own interests, don't worry about the needs of others. But Jesus says... Look to the needs of others. You already care for yourself. Now care for the needs of others. Be concerned for the needs of the people around you. Jesus' brothers say, you've got to get yourself out there. You've got to show show them what you can do. Show them what you've got, Jesus. But note, where all these ideas like the world's way of doing things and the deceiver's way of thinking come from, look at verse 5 again. It comes from, An unbelieving heart. We see it in verse 5. Back in John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. They're speaking from unbelieving hearts. Unbelieving minds. They have not believed in Jesus. They don't yet believe in him. And it's kind of ironic that they're headed out to participate in this religious feast but they don't even recognize the Messiah standing in front of them. This is the same failure to believe that Psalm 69 and verse 8 points to, by way of prophecy, saying, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. They saw his miracles. They believed that he could do those, but they didn't believe in him As the Messiah, here are Jesus' own half-brothers. They're half-brothers because Jesus is not of the seed of Joseph, remember, but of the Holy Spirit. But still, it seems incredible that they could know Jesus from childhood and not believe in Him. They believed He could work miracles because they're telling Him to go work some more, show people, gain a following, work more miracles, but they didn't yet believe He was the Messiah for Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, we know that later they do believe. They do come to faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And two of his brothers, James and Jude, write New Testament books. But at this point, here in John 7, they don't yet fully believe in Jesus. And that's a reminder to you that just because you're familiar with Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that you've believed in him. That's why 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells you to examine yourselves, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. You see, proximity to Jesus is no privilege. Jesus' brothers needed to believe in him, just as Jesus' mother needed to believe in him. Proximity to Jesus is not privilege. Even Even his own relatives needed to put their faith and trust in him if they were to be saved. There's a warning here for you if you think that by going to church you're saved. There's a warning here for you if you think that by doing good works you're saved. There's a warning here for you if you think that simply because you were raised in a Christian home you're saved. And I would suggest there's a warning here for you that even thinking, well, somebody led me in a prayer once, so I'm saved. Is there evidence in your life that you've been saved? That's the question. Is there evidence in your life of true faith in Jesus, that you are truly a follower of Christ, that you're a disciple of Jesus? When you examine yourself, is there evidence that you have truly placed your faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross alone for your salvation? When you test yourself, do you find evidence that you're being changed by God's Word? That you, you're becoming more Christ-like in the way you think, in the way you speak, in the way you do your work, in the way that you do business, in the way that you treat others, in the way that you care for your family and treat your family? Are you being changed by God's Word? I'm not suggesting that there must be perfection God's Word doesn't suggest that there must be perfection. God's Word suggests that you must be changing and being changed by the Word as you submit to it because you have trusted in Jesus and you're following Him. And you're following His Word. If you're God's child, there should be growth in godliness and there should be growth in obedience to the Bible. Now, I want you to note that Jesus had a different timetable A different schedule to keep than the one his brothers thought he should have. Look at verse 6 again. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Jesus' brothers could be at the feast. They could go to the feast. They didn't have the world turning against them. That's what Jesus is pointing to. They could go safely. But Jesus was following the Father's timing, and it wasn't yet time for him. Bible scholar and commentator Warren Wiersbe says that our Lord lived on a divine timetable that was marked out by the Father. That's what Jesus was following, that divine timetable marked out by the Father. God's way is different than the world's way. God's schedule is different than the world's schedule. But God's way and timing is best. Uh, quoting Wiersbe, I think of a little book in my own library of his entitled, God's Not in a Hurry. <laughs> God is not in a hurry. It's true. Jesus is on God the Father's divine timetable. He's on the Father's schedule. His life is not random. It's not chance. It's not just simple activity, going through the motions. Galatians four four reminds us of this when It tells us this truth. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. On God's timetable, God sent forth His Son. Jesus came, born as a baby, at the right time. Jesus acted in all ways at the right time. Exactly at the right time, Jesus would go to the cross. Jesus was crucified and died at the right time, the appointed time. And Jesus rose from the dead at the right time. I want you to note here that Jesus wasn't going to go with his brothers to the feast, not because he was afraid. It wasn't because he was afraid. He pointed to those who were seeking to kill him, yes, but it wasn't because he was afraid. It was because it was not yet time for him to face the severe persecution he would face when it was the proper time. At the proper time, he would be persecuted to death. He would be crucified. But it wasn't this time. It wasn't then. He knew there were those who hated him. He he knew there were those who were seeking to kill him, to put him to death. Note why they hated Jesus. We see it in verse 7, and this is so important. Why don't we see more people following Jesus? Why don't we see more people... In churches that preach and teach the truth of the scriptures, look at verse 7: The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus' brothers were in no particular danger, but Jesus was hated. Why? Because he exposed the evil deeds of the world for what they were. Jesus preached repentance of sin. And those who sought to kill him rejected his preaching. And they rejected that there was any need for repentance of sin. How dare you tell me I'm a sinner? They looked at Jesus and scorned him and mocked him. Sought to kill him. It's interesting that the religious system was out to destroy the very giver of life. If they would see who Jesus was, and repent of their sins and believe in him, they would be saved. The one who would save his people from their sin, they wanted to kill. Why? It hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So what does Jesus tell his brothers? Look at verse 8 again. You go up to the feast. Go on. You go. I'm not going up to this feast For my time has not yet fully come. And verse 9 says, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus wasn't in a hurry. He was following the Father's divine timetable. He would go up to the feast. It would be later. He would go up at the proper time. Uh, We see it in verse 10. But even then, it would be discreetly. Privately, so, so as not to show himself before it was time. You realize God's timing is always perfect. I know you don't always believe that. It's hard for us to believe that God's timing is perfect. We, we have an idea of what we know we need. I mean, we've, we've convinced ourselves, I know exactly what I need. Now, God, if you would just um, fill in the blanks where I've given you the blanks, you know, the little sticky tab, just sign here. follow my timetable, Lord. And yet, God sometimes pumps the brakes and slows us down and doesn't do things the way we would do them. God's timing is always perfect. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, it is one of the things that God seeks to teach you and help you grow in so that you will realize and be ready to rest And wait for his perfect timing. It's not that we're idle and do nothing, but we seek to obey him with our lives as we wait on him. This morning, as we look to the word here in John chapter 7, may God's word help us see today that God's ways are not necessarily our ways. But his ways are perfect. And his timing is perfect. And Jesus would not deviate from the Father's plan. You know, God has given you His Word so that you, you can have the wisdom to live this life He has entrusted to you. And He wants you to be willing to go along on His timetable. And He wants you to submit to the truth of His Word, to live your life the way He has laid out and teaches you to. And maybe you realize today that you're not a believer in Jesus and may you hear from God's word today that the only way to true life is to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. And believers, believers, let's learn from Jesus to follow God's ways in all that we do and to, and to be willing to recognize that God's ways are perfect and His timing is perfect. And let's learn from Jesus to yield to the Father. Let's learn from Jesus to submit to the Father's will. And may we each know God's word and grow in our obedience to it for God's glory. That we might make much of him in this world in which God has us.